David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interac. In early March, Ontario surpassed 7,000 COVID deaths, over 3,700 of which occurred in the province's long-term care facilities. Around the country, suffering and death in care homes is part of an emergency that has long been ignored, an emergency that pre-existed the pandemic. Precarious work, low pay, inadequate staffing, neglect, abuse, unreasonable waitlist times, poor communication, and the urge to put profit before people condition much of the long-term care sector. Because of that, the most vulnerable among us suffer and die. Things could be different. So, how can we solve our long-term care crisis? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Vivian Stamatopoulos, Associate Teaching Professor at Ontario Tech University and LTC Advocate. Let's start by getting a sense of the issue and the extent of the issue. In Ontario, for instance, as of March 3rd, the day that uh, the day after uh, the day before we recorded, there were 7,000 COVID deaths in Ontario, over 3,700 of which were in um, LTCs. So this is not an uncommon pattern. And that's just the deaths. On top of that, there's a deep fear and neglect and suffering. So can you give us an overview of the state of long-term care facilities in Ontario? And and if you want, perhaps beyond our borders here. Right now or? Yeah. Well, during uh, COVID. During COVID, yeah. And I want to get into you know, pre-pandemic later, but, I, but I, I'd like to start on, on post-pandemic. Everything's been a mess. It has been a terrible year for these families and these residents and their workers. I mean, we saw the firsthand the problems of privatizing out this care. And um, I don't think there's a more glaring example of that when you compare the the response to hospitals versus the response to long-term care. I mean, all the resources and supports were prioritized to hospitals because they fall under the Canada Health Act and, and the Hospitals Act, Public Hospitals Act. And, and unfortunately, because in, particularly in Ontario, the vast majority of our homes are for-profit, they are deemed um, private entities. So they weren't given those resources and they were effectively told to buck up and figure it out yourselves. And unfortunately, too many didn't. And we saw, you know, a level of negligence that I don't think we've ever seen. And I pray we never see again. And, you know, when we talk about the state of affairs, we often focus, I mean, quite rightly on on deaths. Deaths is sort of the top line statistic, and that's shocking and and tragic. But below that is an iceberg of, of, you know, neglect, of of suffering, of structural problems that that people had to face, not just now, but pre-pandemic. So thinking about that, I mean, what what do we make of the state of LTCs prior to the pandemic? What, what, for instance, did inspections tell us about under-training, poor treatment of workers, overcrowding, poor support, the sorts of things that ought to have warned us and, and did warn some of, some of us, including yourself, years ago that trouble might lie ahead, especially if there was a crisis like a pandemic? Oh, we knew was a problem. We've been listening to the problem for a long time. There's a litany of inspection reports that document widespread negligence. I mean, it's, it's, it's frankly embarrassing how much negligence Canada allows. I mean, uh, the perfect example I like to give is, you know, when you're doing something that the U.S. 
disapproves of, you got a big problem. So in the U.S. in 2014, they had the largest nursing chain home uh, litigation um, lawsuit against Extended Care. Extended Care is a Canadian company. They were hit hard with um, apparently providing substandard care. And it's the same kinds of things you heard in the Canadian uh, cases, right? So not hiring enough properly trained staff, um, billing for hours that weren't provided or services that weren't provided, um, you know, it, it, residents having increased falls, injuries, preventable death because of neglect and just missing things. Um, and they were, the U.S. Attorney's Office hit them with a $38 million lawsuit. But the biggest thing that they hit them with was they said, you have to enter into a five-year corporate integrity agreement where we watch your staffing levels. An independent monitor is going to watch your staffing levels to make sure you hire enough staff and to make sure that you're improving your quality to residents. And instead of actually engaging in that, you know, corporate agreement, because, you know, I'm sure they could have built out the 38 million, they said, nah, too much work and closed up shop. And I imagine focused on Canada because they know that in Canada, they get a written warning and that's it for the exact same things that they were effectively litigated out of the U.S. for. And it's, it's a real shame that we have allowed the this to happen, where effectively documented negligence, institutionalized violence, because that's exactly what it is when you look at the statistics, and CBC Marketplace has been really good at documenting this. Um, I mean, there's been a 148% increase in, in staff to resident violence over the last 10 years alone. I mean, and, you know, repeat offenders, certain homes that keep repeating violations and they don't learn, and all they get is written warnings. So, of course, it doesn't change their behavior, and the cycle of violence continues. I mean, in what world did we allow, you know, the state of senior care to get to this in Canada? We are the international embarrassment when it comes to protecting our seniors. We are the embarrassment. We had the highest death rates uh, of all the OECD countries. I, I mean, it's an, we, we completely dropped the ball. And it wasn't just during COVID. This was happening before. But this was, you know, COVID hit. And it just intensified the problems that were already there. That, that keep in mind, lawyers, advocates, families have been raising, you know, the, the, the warning signs for years and years and not being listened to and nothing changing. A report after inquiry, after commission, and nothing has changed. And, and I'm at the point now where it's like, if we don't change now, <laughs> after what we saw this past year, it will never change. There is no greater incentive, no greater evidence than there is right now to change the system. And the backlash, and the backlash, I say this very targeted, the backlash from the industry against those of us that are trying to, you know, affect more positive change is, uh, is really heating up right now because the public is on our side. The public wants public, frankly, they want public long-term care, not unlike public hospital care, right? That's what they want. Um, because they also saw that over this past year, hospitals got all the resources. They didn't have many outbreaks. They handled everything just fine. And they saw what happened to long-term care because it wasn't covered the same way that hospitals are under the Canada Health Act. So, yeah, these problems aren't new. Unfortunately, COVID just shone a light on, on what was happening. You know, usually I like to try to ease into my cynicism in this podcast, but on this topic, I think we just need to start with the cynicism. I, Go right in, on in. What, what, <laughs> at this point, I mean, what in what world do we not have stricter enforcement measures uh, when it comes to breaches 
find these uh, private care facilities? Is it, you know, is it that the, the regulator is captured by the industry province by province is that there's no national leadership on this to date. Would that make a difference? I mean, what, uh, you know, uh, the point you bring up is, you know, if it's happening, if the United States thinks you've gone too far, that's probably telling you something. Yeah. Although Canada often trades on that and sort of sneakily gets away with things it shouldn't. But in this case, it seems particularly egregious. I I mean, in what world do we not have that regulation? I mean, why It, it baffles me. But there's got to be an answer. I mean, is it is it industry being captured or is it lack of national leadership? Is it a mix of things? Um, I think a lot of it is the, the the capturing, right? There's there's so many conflicts of interest that it is astounding. I mean, you know, when you look at Ontario, there have been multiple reports of the variety of uh, staffers that left Premier Ford's office to then go lobby full time for the for profit long term care industry. I mean, the uh, Ontario Long-Term Care Association, who, um, you know, the head of that, I, I was on, I debated against last night on, on the agenda. Um, you know, them and other for-profit companies have donated over half a million um, to conservatives and liberals over the past, I think, decade. I mean, you know, three former conservative premiers, uh, Ontario conservative premiers, are now conveniently sitting on boards of very successful for-profit long-term care homes. I mean, come on, there's, there's a problem here. There, and, and what we saw over the pandemic, particularly in Ontario, which if we're gonna say is captured, is captured the most here historically, and it's not just this government, it was before this government as well. Um, the, the policies that did come out, came out, to protect the industry and not the seniors. And I think that was the most upsetting and just unethical and immoral part of it all that, you know, people wonder why the second wave was worse in Ontario and non-Quebec. And I'll tell you why. It's because in Ontario, they decided to create a bill and pass it through in lightning speed in under a month to turn it into a law, Bill 218, that protected uh, these, you know, bad actors and all of the actors from COVID-19 liability. And I predicted you do that. You're giving them a get out of jail free card. It reduces any incentive for them to actually learn lessons from the first wave because you are effectively legislating negligence. You just said negligence. Okay. Now you're forcing them to prove gross negligence, which is precedent setting. This has never been established before. So you've completely changed the rules of the game in the middle of the game. I mean, this is a, this is a huge problem. I mean, <laughs> um, and the fact that, you know, that this has just been, allowed to happen because we have a majority government that these laws that are coming out that protect the industry and and we have not seen any laws that have come out to actually protect the seniors. I mean, you know, I worked with the the NDP to to um table a couple bills, one of them being the more than a visitor act to because the first, you know, 6 months of my advocacy my advocacy started because when families were locked out, I knew how terrible that would be for families and the residents. I knew, uh, based on my own experience within the past year, being in you know the, a long-term care home every day for the better part of nine months. So I knew how important it was. I knew families' role in filling in the care gaps that exist in that system and how devastating it would be. And indeed, that was borne out over the pandemic. People were dying from dehydration and malnutrition. Are you kidding me? That would never have happened if the families were in there because one of the biggest things family do are make sure they come in at mealtimes, make sure that their loved ones are fed properly, make sure that they're given liquids. I mean, this tiny task is life-sustaining. It keeps people alive. 
so that's when I really started my advocacy. So I worked with Lisa Gretzky um, to, to table that and to really, you know, hit home why that was important. And finally, after, you know, six months of, of advocacy and working with several different stakeholders, did we get an amendment to the legislative, well, amendment to the directive um, allowing, you know, an essential caregiver in, um, which was still being violated here and there by, you know, certain bad actors that didn't want to follow the guidance. And we weren't having, you know, there was no oversight by the, the province to actually make sure that, you know, they were following the province's guidance. So that was another problem. But at least that was, if there was one good thing that came out of, you know, this government to actually help the residents, it was reinstating visitors, uh, albeit limited and not as good as I would have wanted, but at least providing that one person because that significantly improved the care I've done. Uh, I just completed data collection with essential caregivers of, of loved ones in long-term care. A and every single one of them would parallel how, how they saw a drastic recovery almost from the massive deterioration in their loved ones for those first six months being in effectively solitary confinement. Most of them were confined to their rooms, no activities, no communal eating, everything was halted. They were literally just stuck in their rooms. I mean, can you imagine being in your room for six months? And what if you didn't have a TV in there? I mean, it's not like, oh, it's not like these places are outfitted with TV and DVDs and all this fun stuff. No, and, you know, families are responsible for putting TVs, putting phones in there. Some of these residents didn't even have phones. I mean, horrifying, horrifying solitary confinement. Um, and they would say how important it was that even just their, you know, one person getting back in, like made all the difference in the world to helping their loved one just improve it in every single way, emotionally, cognitively, physically. I mean, we heard stories of, you know, these residents losing 20, 30 pounds over that past six months because they weren't being fed properly. I mean, and this was the majority of the experience in, in my participants. I mean, and this is what I heard anyway, over the course of my advocacy, I knew this was all happening, which is why I wanted to do research. But I mean, it's just, it's just really upsetting to see that they, this government has, has actively protected the industry and listened to what they want. And the policies that came through really were ones that they were actively lobbying for. And when you look over the last 10 years, I mean, you know, the for-profit lobby, um, has been very successful at lobbying for reduced penalties, reduced inspections. I mean, we know one of the biggest problems is that, you know, especially with this government, before 2015, all of these homes were getting at least one unannounced facility-wide inspection per year, right? So going from 626 to last year, there were nine, nine. So, inspectors? Inspections. Or yeah, inspections per year. Oh, I see. total inspections. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And this occurred under the Ford uh, administration. So they came in and it was before they came in, it was about 100 percent. So one per year for each home. And then it went down to like it just shot down to 50 percent to the nine last year. And I don't even know how many were done this year, because I know for a fact that Donna Duncan, who is, you know, the the head of OLTCA and that's you it's people tend to refer to it as the for-profit lobby because most of the boards of directors on the OLTCA are for-profit CEOs you know for example so they they represent both um all kinds of non-profit I mean sorry both non-profit and for-profit but majority for-profit right so they tend to be referred to by those in the field as the as the for-profit lobby um you know and even in her testimony transcript she herself was pushing not to have inspections in the first wave because you know the, she said they felt they were like wasting resources i mean we could have saved lives if you had inspectors in there 
seen how egregiously these homes were violating PPE, understaffed, um, not providing proper care. I mean, we could have saved lives, but this lobby was arguing that it was a pain in, pain in the ass, quite frankly, for them. And they didn't want them and, and, and mission accomplished because we saw that we didn't, I mean, inspectors were phoning it in, in the first wave. They weren't even going into the homes. I mean, like, you, 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 are you kidding me? <laughs> you can get an, an active, uh, a proper representation of what's happening by calling in and, and having the directors tell you that everything is a-okay. Come on. And it strikes me that one of the most, I mean, because we're not saying that when we're talking about capturing, we're not talking about law breaking. We're talking about an impunity to work within laws that are uh, inadequate. And, and to me, that's in some senses, you know, if someone is breaking the law, it's much easier to deal with than if they're following a law that is utterly inadequate. Right. And I think this is the fundamental problem. But I'm curious, is, is, is there a difference between private care homes and and public care homes? Uh, beyond, say, death numbers? I mean, do we have verifiable data that says, okay, the public or the not-for-profit uh, homes are, are, are much better, for instance? Oh, we've got a body of literature that goes back 20 years, right? They hire, they hire more staff. They have more full-time permanent staff, so there's continuity of care. You have people that work there for a long time. They're progressively building up their expertise, right? They're learning what the residents need. I mean, this is what we call continuity of care. It's so vital. They don't shuttle around. Yeah, of course, idea? because yeah. in the for-profit homes, it tends to be a revolving door because they tend to employ more lower-skilled, um, you know, part-time, precariously employed workers who realize that, you know, they're thrown onto these impossible working conditions where, you know, there's one to care for 30, 40 residents. Sometimes you can't possibly achieve that. So then people just keep quitting because they're like, forget it. We're going to go to the homes where there's better working conditions and we're paid better. And it makes complete sense. So there was always a revolving door in the for-profit sector compared to the nonprofit and municipal sector. And there was always better innovation in, in the nonprofit. I mean, I, I, the city of Toronto is just such a prime example of how to do things right. I mean, they fundraised on their own last year, above and beyond what they are given, right? What everyone is given. And this is the pattern we find, right? And even the LTC commissioners reiterated this uh, with Minister Fullerton, and she didn't seem to understand, but um, that aside, how, it's this curious pattern that the the for, you know the municipals and the nonprofits will you know take the money that they're given from the government and then even add in more and fundraise to provide better care because they're you know we admit that there's successive underinvestment regardless they don't get enough investment regardless so they're all working with a skeleton you know investment but the nonprofits will renovate and they will do what they need to do and fundraise and provide better services and better care than the for-profits. So the, the city of Toronto fundraised over 20 million last year just so they could implement the care standard on their own. The care standard that I remind you that Premier Ford, you know, seemed so proud of when he said, we're going to give it to you in five years, which is laughable because city of Toronto did it on their own in one year and paid for it themselves. But you're saying, you know, you with billions of dollars in, in pandemic um, funds can't institute this effectively now. I mean, you can. So, you know, like for them to do that whole press conference saying, you know, acting like this is, oh my God, this is the best present we could ever give the world and we'll give it to you in five years. So you'll get 15 extra minutes this year and 10 minutes. This is ludicrous, ludicrous. Um, because you have places like the city of Toronto that are already doing it and we're doing it. Right. And then you have, you know, like York region, they fundraise so they can provide these residents fresh fruit and fresh produce. Because what I hear from the for-profit families, you've seen the pictures. I'm sure you saw on Twitter. I didn't realize one post would go viral because a family member showed me 
um, and this is a large chain ownership uh, for-profit home, that um, th- their loved one got literally a, a styrofoam box and inside was like a, a what looked like a half-eaten piece of bread and a f- like a stale sausage. And that was supposed to be their breakfast. I mean, really? And I hear stories like this all the time. And there's multiple, I mean, even CBC Marketplace, I believe, or Yahoo it was, uh, wrote a story on this. They did an investigation and looked at food complaints and they were far higher in the for-profit sector. And they saw that, that this is something that is a known problem, right? Because again, the, the nonprofits tend to go above and beyond to make sure that they're providing better care, better food, better supports to the residents in these homes, while the money that comes in for the for-profits tends to go straight to the shareholders, it would appear, because that money's not going back to resident care. We know they provide you know, less hours of uh, direct care compared to the nonprofit and public homes. I mean, there's a, the BC Ombudsman put out a really, um, gl- really glaring report, I believe it was um, over 2017 to 2018, and they found that you know, for-profit homes compared to the nonprofit homes failed to deliver 270,000 of the hours of their funded care. So they're provided this money and they didn't provide it. And meanwhile, on the other side, nonprofits provided an additional 80,000 hours on top of what they were funded. So this is the general pattern, not just in Ontario. This is what we see from the research across Canada and it's international as well. I mean, a US national study was published last month showing that not only do, you know, it dispelled the myth that there's any some sort of cost savings from privatization nonsense, but, you know, so they found that not only do they spend more, but that <laughs> they increase their short-term mortality and they increase their non-compliance with federal and state care, care standards. So, I mean, where are we winning here? You're not winning in terms of cost savings, right? You're not winning in terms of resident care. I mean, the only people that win in the for-profit model are the shareholders, the shareholders and the CEOs, period. That's it. <laughs> the vast majority of the class action lawsuits, they're against the for-profits. I mean, uh, to me, it's no brand. I mean, this we see this all all the time in yeah. industries like this, where plainly the the for profit model incentive. I mean, I have to take a minute here because I just find it so absurd. The basic logic of it, the sort of like primary level logic of it, is that we we would prefer, in theory, the private sector because it is quote unquote efficient because it, yeah, uh, what sure. it really what we really mean is it produces a profit and it produces a profit by spending far less than it earns well if you apply that logic to long-term care obviously they're going to try to minimize what they spend and maximize what they take in yeah. which to me seems like a perfect example of an industry that ought not to be private the question so i i take that as a given that those folks can go straight to hell we should it shouldn't be <laughs> private but but and quite frankly um there are days where I wish there there was a hell to which they could go. Maybe, maybe there is. Maybe they will. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm. I'm. Um, Karma. We'll see what I, happens. I'm an honest disbeliever, so I can't quite say I'm. I'm but, but then the question becomes, well, okay, do we want? You know, is it a matter of then establishing national standards? Is it a matter of of adopting? nonprofit care, or is it a matter of of state-run facilities? I mean, what what would be an not just an improvement, what would the ideal model look like in a, in a federation like Canada? I mean, ideally, I want to see hosp- treated like hospitals, 
nonprofit, um, municipal, what we've seen over COVID and what we've seen even, you know, in evidence before that, the municipal homes tend to be the best and they're the most public, so to speak, right? I mean, we just had the Toronto Star publish that data. I mean, it was a glaring differential. I mean, the for-profit homes had 7.3 COVID-19 deaths for every 100 beds. Municipal, 1.5. And nonprofit was somewhere in the middle of 3.8. I mean, no contest. They just did better. And when you talk to them and, and you, you know, you see the things they do. They go above and beyond. They have more unionized work, more full-time permanent workers who've been there for a long time, know their workers, feel more allegiance to their jobs, build up on their training. And, you know, even indeed, in the testimony, the commissioners made a point to hit home with Fullerton and Williams that don't you realize that this revolving door is not good for these workers, and particularly in terms of IPAC, because even if you're training them, when they leave, they take that expertise with them. And then you have to start again, constantly training. It's just inefficient from top to bottom to have this kind of revolving door. But they and they've known this for decades, the for profits. This has been criticized to them over and above in the literature. Have they changed? No. They knew year after year, that these ward rooms that they had, because they bought up all the older rooms, all the older homes when they first got into the industry, and they knew, based on seasonal rates of flu every year, that those rooms, those ward rooms were dangerous. Yet, they didn't upgrade them, despite the fact that, unlike the rest of the provinces, Ontario, thanks to Mike Harris, actually created special capital development funds for them to do just that. They had 23 years to upgrade their standards. And that those funds have been increased four times over the last two decades, and they didn't. Many of the nonprofits did. Many of the other homes did. Why didn't they? So they sit here and they fall, you know, they rest on this as our excuse. It's the ward rooms. That's why we had more debts, even though the Toronto Star just completely debunked that. But they still hold strong to that because they've got nothing else to hold on to. And then that's why, you know, I come back at them saying, you had the time. Why didn't you renovate? Why didn't you rebuild? What, was it too much of a hassle? What, you didn't want it? You just thought, ah, eh, forget it. And this is the kind of lack of innovation, lack of dedication to doing what's right for the residents that we see time and time again, uh, reflected not only in what happened during COVID, but in the literature before. I mean, give me a break. So I want to see, I want to see it ideally nationalized care and people, you know, and now the for-profit sector is coming back saying, this is ridiculous. And, and I, I didn't appreciate last night too. Um, when I was on the agenda, the, the whole conversation was about you know, there would be times they say, well, the NDP says you have to do this and it would cost billions and billions. First of all, Trudeau's in power. So I don't know why we're talking about Jagmeet Singh. Second of all, um, like, I mean, we're paying for it anyway. So give me a break. Um, and, and, and this is the fear tactic that is now being pushed by the, by the for-profit sector. I mean, a lot of this, we've seen these in op-eds that came out when we launched our Doctors for Justice movement, because that apparently ruffled some feathers. And then we started to see all these op-eds from people defending for-profit that have affiliations with the industry, um, saying that it's completely impossible. We're these ludicrous socialists, and how are we going to afford this? First of all, we never said that we would change them all overnight. We're, we know it would be a gradual process, because keep in mind, these homes have like 25 to 30 year contracts. So you have to wait till the contracts come up for expiry anyway. And they all come up at different times. So we Do have we? like about, yeah. It, 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 no, but I mean, in the sense that is there not some mechanism to say that if you don't meet certain standards, we're just well, going to cancel is, your contract? The, yeah, there is, but nobody ever does it. And then the, the yeah. then, and even in the, the for-profit that have the, you know, uh, have come out against us, they've said, well, if you do that, you'll get lawsuits. So this is now the threat that we're getting, right? So if you try to, heaven forbid, enact the legislation in the OLT, uh, the um, 
long-term care homes act legislation that says you can revoke licenses if you're shown to not provide care but they don't do it and my guess is because they'll be threatened with 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 legal action right because i mean we flat out heard this from the other side recently so give me a break even even if we wait for the contracts to come up why you know it would be a rolling process. We know this would take time. One of the quickest things we could do, and we have the power to do, is to make Rivera national because Rivera is owned by the public sector pension fund. So we this is a very rare situation where, and it's a. Oh, isn't there the majority shareholder? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, we could actually nationalize Rivera. And, this is and a big I do, chain of, right? This is yeah, it's the second largest one in Canada. And I, and I think that would be a great start. And Jagmeet Singh has been asking for this. And, 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 and I mean, why wouldn't we? I mean, why wouldn't we? Why are we putting, why are we paying for these individuals to get wealthy and, and provide what we hear time and time again and what the ministry inspection report shows, substandard care? I just don't understand. Right. The idea is that would provide competition to the... But there is no competition because there's so many people on a wait list, right? In Ontario right. alone, we've got 38,000 seniors waiting on the wait list. There is no competition. So that myth, that business you know, model does not work in long-term care because there's no competition. People are forced. But even when you hear from people that the wait lists are longer for the nonprofit and municipal homes because people know that they're better, right? So that's one measure. But when you're, when you're in a crisis situation, you got to take what's, what's available. Right. And, and there is no there, there just is no competition. So that goes right out the window. I remember there, that struggle with my own family and the, the sort of stress about waiting and waiting and waiting and the folks getting stuck in the hospital while they wait and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, is it so is this the idea that it's an artificial, uh, you know, uh, scarcity? I mean, because it seems like if there's a demand it ought to the be demand supplied. is there. We just don't have enough beds. We don't have enough facilities, and and, and this has been, you know, subs, you know, not just this government. Obviously, this is this is going back twenty years. They just they there was continued underinvestment in this sector, and a lot of that also to do with you know ageism, sexism, and racism. I've talked about before. Um, we've just overlooked this population, which is disgusting, frankly. And not until you live it and you see how terrible it is then you have a whole new appreciation for just how bad you need to change the system. And um, I think that's why, and it's really frustrating to me that more people aren't like louder about this issue because it hasn't touched them yet. Do you people not realize you're going to age, God willing, you're going <laughs> yeah. to need long-term care, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Right. So it behooves you to start advocating for this change now, because it'll take a while. And if you want to see some form of dignified end to your life, you better get on the ball. You better join the movement because <laughs> this will be your life. This will be how your life ends if you don't do something. And, and it always baffles me. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's not as if we thought we'd stop aging. I mean, maybe if you're, if any, you know, folks who are high on Elon Musk might think that we might stop aging sometime yeah. soon. But I think most normal people think that's probably not likely to happen. But, you know, it, especially looking at the boomer generation, presumably for them, they want to have started getting on this train yesterday, right? Yeah. Because the time's a ticking. So I'm just stunned that there hasn't been a response because we could yeah, we saw the demographic shift coming right it's not as if we mm-hmm. didn't but oh, if, we've the, known. if yep. these if these places are making profits i mean the for profit why aren't they opening more facilities i, I don't understand that is it why aren't they 
Yeah, and if you know, if now the for-profit folks are are exploiting a population to make a profit, but you'd think they would want more facilities to do so. I'm, I'm, it's, all, I'm, I, I, you know, even applying the cynical lens, I would have expected more facilities to open. Uh, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't either. I mean, it's, it's a just... regulatory thing. I, I don't know, but I, but it seems to me that there's just no good reason that the provinces aren't moving on this and opening more facilities if it's such a significant problem. I mean, it's just. Yeah. The other thing is like the kinds of facilities we need to start moving on aren't these big, you know, large institutions like these 300, 400 person beds are just not the way to go. What people want is they, this, okay. In my ideal world, world, this is what I want. This is what I think we need to do. And we need to start immediately. And, And there's three areas. Immediately we need national standards. Because we can't, we're not going to phase out for profit tomorrow. We know this. So that's why we need to at least make sure that we have specific funding tied to clear standards. You know, you can't force the provinces to do this, but if you tie it to money, then the idea being that they'll all buy in eventually, right? You want the money, play the Medicare model. And I, yeah. And I don't know why it's taking, frankly, our prime minister so long to do this because I mean, like, let's, let's do this already. I mean, come on, what's the delay? Um, So that needs to happen immediately, as soon as humanly possible. And then I think we need to immediately start developing a long-term care insurance, not something that, you know, Germany, Netherlands, Japan have this. This is will provide a dedicated long-term care funding stream in perpetuity. It can be added to the Canada Pension, Quebec Pension Plan. We need something like this because, you know, the 10 million seniors are going to be turning 80 in 2025. I mean, this is going to hit us real quick. And we don't have the base of, you know, stay-at-home reproductive female laborers like we did 30, 40 years ago, pre the second you know, phase of the women's movement. So we need, we need to have this figured out. Long-term care insurance, great way to get that extra funding, which we need on top of, not as a replacement for, but on top of the funding that is already set aside. And we are obviously need to increase that as well. Um, but then we also need to focus on the kinds of care we provide, right? Because most people want to age at home. There's no question about it, but home care is a ridiculous joke right now. I mean, I lived it. I saw it. I managed my grandma's home care. It was a more privatized mess than long-term care is. I mean, people not showing up, people saying, you know, they're, they're supposed to be there for an hour. They leave after 10 minutes. I mean, I lived this. It was a disaster trying to get any accountability from the privatized agencies that the city is, you know, effectively outsourced this to is worse than calling Rogers when you got a problem with your, with your internet or your cable. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Um, that needs to change. So we need a public form of home care and long-term care. I want it all in the same umbrella, right? It's what kind of long-term care to use. Some people are always going to need institutions. There's no, there's no denying that. Um, but we should have smaller models that you see in Denmark, small six to eight person, um, you know, like houses, mini houses kind of thing where, you know, you share, you have your own bedroom, you have your own bathroom, obviously. We learn now through COVID how important that is, but you share like a, a kitchen and a garden area and that kind of thing. And, and that's what Denmark does. They haven't built a conventional nursing home in two decades, and it's very successful because they started investing all of their money into home and community care. And they have very highly trained nurses that are sent out into the community to help people age in place. And that is what we need to move towards. But my fear now is that, and we're seeing this happen right now, that home care is starting to get even more privatized out. And it's already a mess. So if we start to say, okay, you guys don't like long-term care in the form of these institutions, 
fine, we'll just do home care and then we'll just continue the privatization of it and it'll be even worse than it is right now. It's just, we're at a very dangerous precipice right now. And if we continue down this path of privatization, particularly in home care as a way to, you know, ignore what happens, what we need to do in, in institutional care, we're going to be in a big problem. And that's what I, what I see happening in Ontario and I'm very fearful for. <sighs> it's a mess. We're so stupid sometimes. We really are. I, I mean, I just, it's just stunning to me. I just, did we not learn anything from Medicare? I mean, we saw, we know now the evidence is clear. I mean, and keep in mind when Medicare started, people were fighting Tommy Douglas tooth and nail. And it wasn't just people, it was doctors. It was doctors who didn't want to lose their prestige and their position in this very lucrative, you know, sector that they dominated, frankly. And, um, it was, it was, it was a, you know, tricky 10 years getting everyone on board, but thank God he prevailed. And, you know, public health care is our most cherished institution. Poll after poll finds that. I mean, in 2004, CBC held a primetime special where they let millions of Canadians vote in who the greatest Canadian of all time was. It wasn't Wayne Gretzky. It was Tommy Douglas. We know, we saw how efficient, how equitable, and how much safer public health care is. Why don't we extend that to our seniors? It makes no sense. We know in the long term, it will be cheaper. It will be safer. It will be fairer. Why aren't we doing this? <laughs> I mean, wake well, up, people. Yeah. Uh, to me, it seems like there's, well, there's at least two reasons, a lack of political courage, but also, you know, regulators that are just utterly captured. I mean, how? Yeah. I, I think, but however, I mean, I mean, I've been watching your advocacy work and I've been watching the work of others uh, for some time now. And one of the things I see, and you mentioned this earlier, is that the public is on your side. Yeah. And I do think we've got elections coming up yeah. uh, federally, uh, you know, a handful subnationally before too, too long. I, I, this has got to be an election issue, right? I mean, certainly. I mean, it, it's it is agenda, to me. Right? Yeah. I hope so. So yeah. there's an opportunity for some political. Now, I know for a fact that there are a handful of political types who listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> some of whom are elected, some of whom would like to be elected, some of whom run parties. Okay. Uh, there's a seems like there's a, a an awfully significant opportunity here to pick up this issue and not just you know win political points, obviously, but improve and save lives, which ought to be the goal of politics, to say yeah. the least. Um, do you think that there's a moment here where where things might genuinely change because someone's going to champion? A better model. I just pray. I just pray. I mean, I, I am cynical because I am exhausted and I've been fighting every day for almost a year now and I haven't seen as much change as I would like. Um, and that obviously makes me cynical because I'm someone that, you know, when I see change, then I believe that there's going to be more change. <laughs> I want to see results. I don't want to hear fancy promises. I want you to do something. I don't like the bullshit. Do something. So, and I think I've even used that term in my conversations with some political leaders and I probably should just, that's a sign. I'm probably a little burnt out, but anyway, no, they say um, far worse. I'm just, you know, you know me, I'm the kind of person that I'm a no bullshit kind of person. I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm wasting my time. I want to know that something's going to happen. And, and I obviously I want something to happen. So I pray that that because I think you're right. I think this is, you know, equal parts, you know, regulatory capture, equal parts, weakness you know we need this is the time for people to be brave and to be bold this is the time this is your tommy douglas moment if i'm speaking directly to you know true 
you know, um, this is your moment. This is your moment, right? There is no greater national crisis than long-term care. What we saw happened was the worst thing that has ever happened to this entire demographic of seniors in our history. I mean, this is abhorrent what happened to these Canadian seniors in these facilities. And not just seniors, there's persons with disabilities that are younger, that are, don't have proper area, proper places to go for them. So they're put into long-term care as well. So I tend to say seniors because the majority are seniors, but still there are some younger people with disabilities that are in these homes. Um, so I'm not trying to forget them. But yes, I mean, this is the moment. This is the moment to be bold and, and, and break this dysfunctional status quo do something good because this is the right thing to do. And I'm a kind of person that there's a, there's right and wrong sometimes, right? You know, I know there's shades of gray, but this is a black and white. This is a right and wrong issue. You're either on the right side of history or you're not. I mean, we, we know the problems. We saw what happened. We read the military reports. Those military reports were not just confined to those six homes, five of which were for profit, by the way. Those were happening in countless homes across the country. I heard from hundreds upon hundreds of families, horrifying accounts of neglect and abuse and, and, and preventable death. I mean, this was happening. I, I can't even take a guess at how many homes, but it wasn't just those five, six homes. And, um, and they know this. Every elected official must know this now. I mean, this was the, probably the most written about topic over the, the entire year. So if something doesn't drastically change after this, I mean, what, I, when, when will it? Can I give you my slightly, well, if not optimistic, well, let, let's say optimistic take here. Please give me optimism. <laughs> it's a, you know, it, it, it really speaks to how screwed up everything is if I'm the optimistic one in a conversation, <laughs> because it's usually not how it goes. But one of the things I've noticed in following this, this, issue for some time now and, and and again specifically following your work but al but also the the broader conversation around it nationally the agenda has shifted on this very fast and one of the things i look at when i'm studying policy changes and developments is is what's on the agenda what's not on the agenda what mm -hmm. gets on the agenda and how fast does that agenda move after it does climate change for instance was an issue where believe it or not the agenda got set pretty quickly and a consensus formed pretty quickly to the point where even the Tories have to pretend to care. And I, I think I'm seeing this in LTCs now. I think we've reached an inflection point in which the agenda has been set. It's getting uh, set closer to what, what you advocate for every day and that there's going to be a real opportunity where luck and preparation meet for a significant change in the next year or two. I, I, that's my optimistic take on the policy landscape for this. Uh, but uh, but I will go back to what you said. If we don't do it, then we're just truly well beyond hope because what else yeah. do we need? I agree with that. But I do think there's the agenda has shifted. But I mean, this is, you know, that old line from what's it from? Extremely loud and incredibly close. It's I think it's from a Jonathan a Safran Four book or something like that. It's sort of like, you know, it's like falling in love. It happens not at all. And then all at once. You know what I mean? <laughs> Here's something to hope like in. It's a good line. It's a great line, but it often does, right? Like you, I hope. I really you know, you, pray. You, you study the landscape for 20 years and it seems like nothing happens. And then one day you wake up and everything happens. Uh, you know, there's obviously behind that everything happening. There's years of hard work and preparation by people like you and other advocates and, and researchers who have been who've been preparing. That work goes on. You don't always see it, but it's happening. When change happens, it's because people have been working on it and often not seen. But then it sort of like cascades. And I... I think there's a moment where it just might, and uh, I certainly hope it will.
that's my I, optimistic I, bit. That's I pray. I really do. I mean, because I, I had the opportunity to address our prime minister um, in a, it was a, um, what was it called? It was like an online expert um, town hall kind of thing. And um, of course, so, you know, we all had two minutes. So I wanted to make sure I, you know, my two minutes were, were worthwhile. And I kind of said to him, listen, my fear right now is that with vaccinations, and this is exactly what we're seeing, right? So the, the deaths have gone down drastically. It doesn't mean the neglect has gone down, but the deaths have gone down. So the public eye, the, the media isn't writing about it so much. And, and, and that's my fear is that they're going to think that because there's not a lot of deaths, all the problems are gone and we're going to lose that momentum. And it's not, it, you know, vaccinations don't change the pre-existing neglect and abuse that occurs in these homes. So, you know, like we need national standards now. And, and, and it wasn't lost on me that um, he spent the longest time answering my question. He spent like a full seven minutes and you could tell he was frustrated and you could tell he's being hit with um, jurisdictional challenges by certain provinces. And I'm imagining those are Ontario and Quebec. Um, but you could, but it's, I genuinely got the impression that this is important to him and he was just as frustrated. So I really pray that, that he does something with this and, and that, I don't know if it's happening behind the scenes. I've had some meetings with, you know, individuals and, and the minister, you know, Patty Hyju's people, Deb Schultz people, you know, the prime minister's people. And, and I'm just hoping that, that something's going to happen soon. But, um, you know, every day that I don't see anything, I just I start to feel a little more defeated. Well, there's an election coming up. I yeah. suspect there's a lot of things being kept back for the election. And, and well, first, I mean, first off, thank you. Thank you for doing that work. I mean, it, 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 I know people appreciate it. And for, for politicians out there, they'd be utter fools not to, not to jump on this, not to mention uh, moral cowards. So I certainly hope that they, that they do. Uh, where's the NDP? I'll, let's close out on this. Where's the NDP on this? Because I know you've spoken with, with Jagmeet Singh as well. I mean, I'll admit the NDP has been probably the closest to the model that I think we need to have, right? So they're pretty much, they want, they've already put out their uh, care guarantee, which is their long-term care platform, which is pretty much calling for what we've said, right? Start divesting from for-profit where you can and start, you know, and putting in the proper investment and develop the national standards, develop, you know, clear daily hours of care standard, the daily care standard, which, you know, and which is the other thing to point out that, you know, we, we are trying to say we're going to give four hours over five years here in Ontario, and that's supposed to be a blessing. Meanwhile, that care standard, that four hours was developed well over a decade ago. And if you ask the experts now, it should be somewhere between five to seven. So like that in and of itself shows you how out of touch certain people are with actually engaging with the literature and engaging with, with this sector. I mean, Minister Fullerton hasn't been in a long-term care home once this entire pandemic. I mean, her press secretary confirmed it with Sue Ann Levy. Not once. I had, I, I imagine this was the case because you, you saw no, you know, usually they love their photo ops and, and there were never any photo ops of her anywhere at any, like in the hardest hit sector, you did not step foot into one of these facilities yet. You had the audacity to say that everything's fine. And that, you know, reports from the ground floor are quote unquote misinformation. That really pissed me off, frankly, when, um, and that kind of response circulated after tender care. And I worked with the families to, to host, um, to, to really shed light on what was happening there and host town halls. We invited her to come. She didn't come. She didn't, she refused to meet with us. And instead, you know, went on global news shortly thereafter saying that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation circulating. That misinformation was, was shown to be true. No apologies to the families. I mean, this is the kind of treatment 
that people trying to fight to protect the residents have received by this government. Never once have they responded to, to my request to meet. Never once have they, you know, it's, it's, it's been very interesting to watch. And in fact, people that have been critical of them have received very strange emails from, you know, the minister's office being like, well, we saw that you're critical. And did you know, like, what, what is your intention here? You, are you trying to tell people not to be critical? What, 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 is, what is this? I mean, this is ridiculous. We're trying to point out there's problems so you can actually listen and fix. And instead you're saying they're not true and that, you know, people are being unduly critical. I mean, it, it's, it's been fascinating to watch. <sighs> I know. Well, the optimism is no, <laughs> I still See, I, I can yeah. drain a room of the optimism and you know me normally I'm a very upbeat, you know, positive hope for the best kind of person. But this, this experience has been, has been quite the, uh, you know, air deflating one for at least in Ontario, trying to work with this government has been very tough for the families and their advocates. Well, nonetheless, I can, I can only imagine, but I, I know that people are deeply appreciative of that, of that work, including myself. And, and that brings us to time, but I will remind us all that there is an opportunity here, that there is hope that your work uh, is making an appreciable difference and the agenda has changed so I, I do i do in fact remain hopeful and, and i'll close off and uh thank you very much for your work and for joining me here today anytime and of course as always thanks to uh, mira ahmad and aaron reynolds without whom this podcast would either not exist or would exist in a much more uh, incomprehensible format so my thanks to both of them and as always my thanks to everyone listening at home or wherever you might be but presumably at home these days uh, stay as safe as you can and as well as you can and we look forward to being back here with you in a couple of weeks thanks for listening